All right. I work in uh, the corporate world, not necessarily something either proud or not proud of, I guess, but it's where I find myself in the corporate world. And there's a phrase in the corporate world that gets used, um, oh, quite a bit, and it's called due diligence. Due diligence. Uh, and it's this idea that uh, uh, whatever the business is doing, whether it be accounting or technology or big purchases or whatever, that uh, significant research and understanding about what's to be done is, has, has happened before you do it. Um, it came, it uh, is especially true in the financial world after the Enron, uh, as I think President Bush called it, the cooking of the books. <laughs> Uh, and there was a, a new law passed, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act that was passed in 2002. Uh, that, all these rules and regulations and guidelines, some I'm sure which are very good and important, uh, uh, but they forced the businesses to do due diligence in, in, in accounting in this particular case. And, and that's what we want to talk about a little bit today. Not accounting, but diligence uh, in our faith. Uh, diligence and faith is what I titled this message from 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter, so go ahead and turn to that if you will. Um, and the theme of diligence is, I think, throughout the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter is a fairly small book, three chapters. Um, 2 Peter ends with uh, these verses from chapter 3, 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now to the day and to the day of eternity. And this ideal of diligence, I think, is in three different aspects in the book of Second Peter. The first, chat, first 11 verses, which is what we're going to look at today, I believe he's talking about the diligence of your faith. And then later on, the end of chapter 1 and the, the majority of chapter 2, he's going to talk about the diligence uh, in teaching. And then in the final chapter, Peter talks about and encourages the, uh, his audience to have diligence in waiting for the soon return of, of Jesus Christ. So the theme of diligence, it's used four, the word itself is used four times in the book of Second Peter. And by definition, uh, uh, the Oxford definition is, the Oxford Dictionary definition is, Diligent, careful and steady in application to one's own work or duties. Or my definition, pay attention and persevere. Uh, I think there's those two elements are in that word of diligence. Pay attention and persevere. Um, I think about a golfer that comes to my mind, maybe just because I am not a diligent golfer. But when you think of golf, and those of you who play golf... There is a lot of things you got to pay attention to. How you stand, how the ball is placed, the wind, the lay of the land, uh, where the hole is, all these kinds of things you must pay attention to. You've got to pay attention to the way you swing. And not only that with golf, but there is also perseverance, at least uh, for most people I meet. It's, you never master it. You keep trying to tweak things. You keep trying to change things. You keep trying to improve. We want to take that idea of diligence now, though, and apply it not not to golf, but to our faith. Apply diligence in our faith. So by way of introduction uh, to the book of Second Peter, it was written, of course, by Peter, uh, at least as, as I believe and most conservative evangelical scholars believe. Uh, we'll talk about that in just briefly in just a minute. But Peter, uh, sometimes called Cephas in Scripture, that's his Aramaic name. Peter is his Greek name. 
Peter is one of those characters that is, has, what, is, what would you say, a strong personality. Sometimes I know in my mind you tend to think of him as merely, you know, kind of always putting his foot in his mouth, which I think he did do that quite often. But Peter was far more than that. He was one of the great apostles, and he gave to us uh, two, two letters here in Scripture, the second one uh, that we'll be looking at today. He walked on water, at least for a while, <laughs> observed the transfiguration, he denied Christ, he confessed that Jesus was Messiah, he fell asleep at Gethsemane, he cut off the ear of the arrester, he saw the empty tomb, and he was a leader of the early church. He was a fisherman. He, Matthew 8 tells us he was married. Um, he was, Peter is the one, remember in Acts chapter 11, while at Joppa saw the vision of the unclean animals coming down on the blanket, and, and God was saying, now these are clean to eat, and set... And in reference to Gentiles not having to follow, needing to follow the dietary laws uh, that the Israelites did uh, when they became Christ, uh, became Christians, uh, the, the Gentiles didn't need to follow those. He struggled with that. We see that in Acts chapter 11 when he opposed Paul in Antioch on that exact issue, on whether or not the uh, converted Gentiles should follow uh, the Jewish dietary customs and circumcisions and such. But we also see then in Acts 15 when the Jerusalem Council happened that he was one of the leaders in saying, no, this was not a part of the gospel. This is not a part of the good news. You don't have to uh, follow the Jewish uh, dietary custom and laws to be saved. Um, so Peter, of course, is a very much a part of the early church and the founding of, of the church of Jesus Christ. Um, did Peter write Second Peter? Those are always the question that tends to be asked by the liberal scholars and not the conservative scholars. Uh, I personally take uh, verse 1 uh, of First Peter on its, at its word. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Seems pretty clear from the internal evidence that the text claims that Peter was the author. Uh, there is much evidence to support it. I won't bore you with much of it other than just to mention, just to rattle off a few things. Uh, Clement of Rome, an early church father, alluded to it in some of his writings as early as 95 to 97 A.D. Cyril of Jerusalem, Jerome, and Augustine all called it authentic. Uh, the famed um, archaeologist W.F. Albright found reminiscence of 2 Peter in some Qumran literature that's dated uh, in 2nd century. Uh, so I think there's good evidence to support, even though it's, it's greatly challenged even today, uh, that Peter wrote Second Peter. Uh, there's an article uh, by B Kenneth Gangle, I believe, is the the author of it. It's on Bible.org. It's a very good uh, defense of uh, Peter and authorship. But that's not going to be the focus of my of, of the message here today. Uh, J. Vernon McGee calls Second Peter uh, Peter's swan song. There's the idea, the mythology or wives' tale about a song sings a beautiful, or a swan sings a beautiful song before they die. It is just that. It doesn't, it's just a wise tale. But that's where we get the idea of swan song. It's kind of like the last letter before someone dies. That's what Second Timothy was for Paul. I believe that's also true uh, for Second Peter for Peter. Uh, and I base that primarily on verse 14 of chapter 1 where he talks about he's going to soon be laying aside his earthly dwelling. It's, it's imminent. Um, this was Peter's second letter, I believe, to this audience uh, that he called scattered aliens in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. 
He's talking, I think, to scattered specifically Jews and believers in, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. If you look at an atlas on that, that's pretty much most of Turkey. <laughs> so different places throughout uh, out that uh, Asia Minor is what they called it then. Uh, one of the uh, critiques of 2 Peter and 1 Peter, and one of the reasons some of the, some of the liberal scholars will uh, deny that Peter wrote 2 Peter, it's simply because the language in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, the styles are quite different. I'm always intrigued by that kind of an argument, that if the styles are different, it must have had different authors. Because um, it implies that an author can't write in multiple styles, which I think we see is, is cer certainly not true. Even in our own lives, we, depending on who we're writing to and our situation in which we write, we're going to write differently. Kent's going to write a, uh oh, now I'm going to have to, a legal, some legal document. I'm not sure of the right term. He's going to write that differently than a, uh, a letter to his wife, right? Okay, there's going to be different, it's going to be a different style, I think, anyway. <laughs> we'll assume that's true. <laughs> okay, so I, I think that's kind of, uh, kind of a, a poor argument for uh, non Peter and authorship. Uh, now, there is certainly some uniquenesses. Uh, now, there, uh, there are 686 what they call hapax legomenas. Now, that, I believe, is a Latin term. All it means is, is that a Greek word, it's, the, it's a, when a Greek word is only used one place in Scripture, okay? When a Greek word is only used one place in Scripture, that's happened 600, for 686 times in the New Testament. 62 of them are found in 1 Peter, 54 of them is found in 2 Peter. That's a very small amount of literature where there's a lot of uniqueness. So I think that simply speaks to the richness of the vocabulary of Peter, and I would argue even that that would, would uh, indicate uh, at least evidence in the line that 1 Peter and 2 Peter were written by the same person because they are both using, the authors are both using unique language. So... Anyway, that's, that's all for the uh, uh, defense of Peter and authorship. I don't think the audience, uh, yourselves, <laughs> requires much of that. But it is, uh, if you do want to read more, I would suggest Kenneth Gangle's article on Bible.org. All right, let's get to the text. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to, to those who have received a faith of the of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And let's stop there for a moment. We've defined diligence. Now I want to try to define faith. Now faith is one of those words when you try to define it, uh, short pithy remarks only take you so far. It's a big idea, the idea of faith. And I'm sure I'm just, we'll just be skimming the, the surface here on what is faith, but I think it's important to at least uh, try to sort out what, uh, what are some elements of faith, what are not elements of faith. So what is faith? Faith is not merely a blind leap. It's not merely closing our eyes to the evidence around us and jumping in anyway. That's not what faith is. Faith is not even against reason, opposed to reason. It's not opposed to reason. Faith is not an instrument of personal power, as the word faith uh, teachings would like us to think, that somehow that personal faith can create reality, that we have power when we have faith, personal power, personal power. Faith, I would suggest, is above reason, not against reason, but above reason. It's unseen. It has to be revealed to us in a sense. 
and it's not contrary to reason. Faith and reason, I think it will do be, is good for us to compare and contrast these ideas. As anything uh, in this world, mankind tends to take them to extremes. And let's, let me just give you just the two extremes, which I think we need to come down in the middle of. One is fetism. It's, that's the, the fancy word. Fetism is simply this idea that faith is all that matters, and faith is, is, it can be contrary to reason, and there's no problem with that. You can live your life perfectly fine. That's, quite honestly, that's, I think, sometimes the world looks as, at us Christians as we are fetus, that our faith is held against that which we know to be true and reasonable. But that's not what we hold as Christians. That's not their kind of faith. Our faith is not just completely apart from reason. But we're not rationalists either in the sense that we believe that uh, we as humans can, uh, can gather all, all, we have all knowledge that is available. Uh, it can all be known merely by human experience and human understanding. We believe there's something namely called God that is beyond our reason. Not that we can't say some reasonable things, reasonable things about God, but that he is beyond it. And he has to reveal to us uh, uh, certain divine things. Uh, Norm Geisler in his Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics, when reflecting on some of the thoughts of Thomas Aquinas, says a couple, uh, I think, uh, pretty, pretty helpful things here. At least it was helpful to me about this idea of reason and faith. Reason cannot produce faith. <clears throat> reason, excuse me, reason accompanies but does not cause faith. Faith is consent with inquiry in that faith's assent is not caused by investigation. Rather, it is produced by God. Faith and reason are parallel. One does not cause the other because faith involves will or freedom, and reason does not coerce it, the will. A person is free to dissent, even though there may be convincing reasons to believe. Now, let me try to sort this out, uh, this idea of belief, an unbelief, knowing, and not knowing. Um, the, the idea here is that reason, the things that we can understand by reason, let me give you some examples. Two plus two equals four, okay? Gravity, for instance, is another example. Our own existence, okay? We know these things to be true. And we, it, it, there is no choice of the will in the matter. In other words, we don't get to choose whether 2 plus 2 equals 4. 2 plus 2 is equal to 4. Our will has nothing to do with it. Now, some may say at this point, yes, but some deny 2 plus 2 equals 4. Some deny their existence. Yes, that is true. We can, we can veil, people can veil that which they know to be true, and we tend to call those people, uh, I can't think of a nicer word, but a fool. <laughs> Uh, I don't, you know, that's tend to what we call those people that t simply deny the things that are known to be true to be true. Faith, on the other hand, elicits a response. Faith elicits a response. Faith is the unseen and the unobservable, while reason is the seen and the, un and the observable. The will can or cannot respond. There can be a choice of belief or unbelief when it comes to, matter, to, to faith. Think about it in the scripture. Uh, when you think about the miracles of Jesus and his, himself not only showing that he was prophet, but that he was God, there are those who believed and there are those who didn't believe. Okay, It was a matter of their faith. It was a matter of exercising their faith in what was revealed to them. 
In Scripture, uh, for instance, in Matthew 13, we see that sometimes Jesus did not do miracles among the people. And that is because they would not believe. The, God could reveal himself. He could give the faith to the people, but the, he knew in his infinite knowledge that they would not respond in belief. And so he chose not to do the miracles. And let me just end this idea of trying to define faith, which is quite a monumental task, with Scripture itself. Hebrews 11.1, 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen. Faith we see in the text here, it is received. It is a divine gift. It originates in God. Uh, in another passage, we, it, faith is described, uh, God is described as the author of our faith and the perfecter of our faith. It is our responsibility to exer that, exercise that faith that God has given us and to believe. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with the endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Faith is received. The second section, uh, verses 2 through 9, let's read those. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supplying moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, short having forgotten his purification from his sins. And the point, I think, here is that faith produces. Faith produces. Um, saving faith has outworkings in our, in our life. It's just completely con uh, in contrast to many of the false religions and false cults of our time where works, if you will, produce the faith. They produce the righteousness. It's just the opposite in the Christian faith. It's our faith that precedes any good deeds that we might do. Not only does it precede it, I would say that it commands it. I think that's what we see in the book of James. We see the book of James uh, showing us that saving faith is sanctifying faith. Saving faith is doing works inward and outward in our lives. Um, in this passage, there's a phrase that I want to, in First Peter here that we just read, that uh, I think we ought to pause just a little bit on. It says, we are partake, when we do these things, after he gives this list of, 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 of like moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and so forth, he says that uh, we can become partakers of the divine nature. 
partakers of the divine nature. Now, I could see very easily how that phrase could get twisted uh, by some to, to say, well, Paul, Peter is telling us that we basically can become God. That's certainly not what Peter is telling us, however. He's not telling us that we can become of the same nature of God himself. But I would say that he's telling us that we can participate in God's nature. And as much as we do these things, these qualities, these communicable attributes of God, and, and as much as we do those things in which God is, in that sense, we are being partakers of the divine nature. We are becoming God-like, as it were, or Christ-like. And the list, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. Of course, much could be said about each one of those, not the focus of our message today. But that these should become in a growing measure. <clears throat> I'm not for sure. I, I've heard that, uh, and I heard a case I made before that these are in kind of a series. Uh, I'm not so certain that's really what Peter is getting at. Maybe he is, but I think it's more that these are, should all be showing up in our lives. These should be, should be showing up in growing measure as we live out our life of faith. <clears throat> and then he uh, uses the phrase that if we do these things, we're going to be either neither, we will be neither useless or unfruitful. Kind of an, a negative aspect of this. In other words, what he's saying, when we do these things, we're going to be useful <laughs> and fruitful. Useful and fruitful. <clears throat> um, when I think of faith producing and faith working out in somebody's life, uh, one, one person that comes to my mind, um, you probably have heard of them, is Johnny Erickson Tata. That's one for me personally that is very, um, very, a very good example to see how faith is working out in somebody's life. If, you're, if you don't know about Johnny Erickson Todd, as a young lady, what, in the late 60s, I believe, she was in a diving accident <clears throat> as a young girl in her teens and became a paraplegic, uh, paralyzed. And she, as you hear her, her talk about her, her journey from that point on in her faith, uh, there was certainly periods of time where she went to uh, to a faith heal faith healers and they would roll her basically roll her out and she would she was looking for some hope to be saved uh, or from uh, recovered from this from this illness and it just wasn't in the cards it wasn't what God had planned for her life and just to see now how she is taking that type of a tragedy in her own personal life and of course she has has I think she has showed diligent faith. Uh, you know, she has, has a successful ministry, she is an author, she has uh, won uh, numerous uh, awards uh, and achievements, she's painted with her, with, her, with her mouth, all these types of things. But you know, when I think about when she stands before God, those kind of things, although as human beings, those are the things we see as, okay, that, that shows her faith in a sense. But I think what God is going to be, is going to reward her with is simply her faith, diligence and faith trying to take a situation where she can't see the, the, thing, the reasons why she was put in this situation. You can't do it. You can try to, and whatever the situation is, is when you're going through a tragedy, you try to make some sense of things, and sometimes we get glimpses and pieces, but the bottom line is we can't see it. And so there is a trust, there's a faith there that has to happen. And I think that's what God will reward Johnny for when she meets her maker. Faith produces. Faith is received, faith produces, and finally, verses 10 and 11, faith assures. Therefore, brethren, 
Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. He called, he chose, he saves, he calls us to believe. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Verse 10. Um, now, I don't think this is talking about, this is not, I don't believe, a text explaining that you can stumble away from your salvation. I don't think that's what the context of this, this letter is, is discussing. What he's discussing, what Peter is discussing is our life, the way we live our life, our journey of faith. And he is saying, I believe, another way to say it is, you can't go wrong doing these things. These things are good. These, this list, this moral excellence and self-control and so forth, these are good things. You can't go wrong doing these. Now, we live in a world much like Mr. Incredible. Okay, how many of you have seen The Incredibles? Okay, pretty good job. I, that's one of my favorite movies. I, there's a lot of philosophical things. I'm going to pick just one of them. Uh, just a great movie. So you got Mr. Incredible, Mr. Superhero, right? And he's going about saving the world like any good superhero. Well, the one, one scene, I think it's at the very beginning of the movie, and this guy is falling off the building. And Mr. Incredible rushes in, saves his life, you know, brings him to the ground safely, and you think everything's fine. But then in the next few moments, a news conference is called. <laughs> and his attorney, sorry, Kent, <laughs> his attorney is right beside uh, this man who was saved by Mr. Incredible, and his attorney says, we're now going to file a lawsuit against you, Mr. Incredible, because our, my client was trying to take his own life. <laughs> and so he was trying to kill himself. Mr. Incredible saved him, and somehow good and evil tend to get turned upside down, and I think that often can happen in our world as well. So when we say, when Peter is saying that there is... Uh, uh, how does he put it? Um, oh, I lost my place. <laughs> There's, um, when you practice these things, you will never stumble. Okay? He does not mean that we're necessarily going to always receive praise and kudos from mankind. It just simply means that it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. You can't go wrong in God's eyes. Um, I think it's comparable to, remember at the end of the, the list of... Uh, Fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians. Paul uses the phrase, and against such things there is no law. It's this idea of this is right, this is good. There's nothing wrong with any of these. Go do them. And I think it's the same idea here that Peter's trying to convey when he says you will never stumble. Um, faith assures. Let me, one of the things I've been telling my kids, especially my older kids lately, is that your faith needs to grow not just, it, it certainly can grow in the turbulent times, but your faith should also grow in the calm times. When the times are peaceful in your life, when things are going pretty well, your faith should still be growing. It should still be uh, growing roots deep down so when the winds of trouble come, you can stand. Um, when you want, you want to learn about the God and the character of God when, when you're not in the midst of, of, of trouble and tra tragedy, it's very difficult in those times then to somehow uh, gather all of the, uh, the, the, the 
truths and principles that God tells about in his scripture in those times. We need to be preparing ourselves now um, for faith to, that will withstand storms. And then finally, in verse 11, uh, Peter writes uh, that the righteousness of Christ is the entrance into the eternal kingdom. This is our entrance into the eternal kingdom. I like the way the English Standard uh, translates this verse. It says, for in this way there will, be, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's not saying that these qualities, these moral excellence, self-control, and so forth, provide in and of themselves the way into the kingdom, but only as much as it reflects the character and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the one who will, is our entrance into heaven. The moral perfection of Christ greets us at the gates of the eternal kingdom. Faith is received, faith produces, faith assures. Peter calls his hearers to a diligent faith a faith that produces good works, a faith that remembers what we are saved from and who saved us. He calls us to take care of the details of our faith and to continue on, whether calm or stormy waters. Sir Walter Riley is a 16th century English poet, and just a portion of his poem, uh, The Passionate Man's Pilgrimage. Give me my scallop shell of quiet, my staff of faith to walk upon, my scrip of joy, immortal diet, my bottle of salvation, my gown of glory, hope's true gauge, and thus I'll take my pilgrimage. When we walk along our journey of faith, as Peter tells us, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Anything that lacks is not, from, is not that which is from God, it's which is in ourselves. As we think about application, uh, two things come to mind. The first one in the journey of faith is that we're not alone. You think of the apostles, Peter, Paul, and the, the, the struggles they went through. Think about even uh, the idea of taking the Bible, God's revealed word, in which grows our faith. That which is uh, the people who brought that into our, our common language, that, uh, you know, the William Tyndales, the John Wycliffe's, the Martin Luther's for German, um, just the uh, that their faith was built not on their circumstances around them, what they saw around them, and what they saw was going to be their fate in a sense, or they thought might be their fate, and, and even being burned at the stake or whatever it may be. Uh, but they had a faith that endured. Um, our faith is not, although we personally have responsibility in our individual faith, but we also have faith together as a body whether it be in our immediate family with believers. Some of us have, are fortunate enough to have believers in our immediate family. That's a, that's a great way to, to, to have, our, have our faith uh, uh, grow. Is we are sharpened by our family members, probably more so than by anybody. Uh, the greater family of lion and lamb and the greater family of the church uh, invisible. We are not alone in our journey of faith. We can share our struggles and our our strengths with others. Um, and finally, we're to, rem to, to try to remove that in, which, in our life which is stifling our faith. What are those things in our life that stifles us from being diligent in our faith or that uh, causes us to, um, to hinder us in this? Uh, one, and I just picked a few, one I think is apathy. 
apathy. And it's kind of this idea, and I know I've fallen into this before, especially as a, as a younger believer. I'm saved. That's all that matters. Or that's the most important thing. I'm saved. Um, getting saved is not the end. It's the beginning. I often say to my, to my family, getting saved is not the end. It's merely the beginning of your journey in faith. Uh, smooth sailing. I think that's something we all as Americans have to guard against. Uh, because when the waters are calm, you know, we tend to, tend to take the, the, uh, uh, the reins pretty easily. Um, smooth waters in our culture, in our life, uh, whether there be material uh, comfort or uh, personal health or whatever it may be, I think those can be, de- uh, those can be hindrance to our be- being diligent in our faith. And as I said before, I think it's in these times when uh, God has given us uh, the, the, the moments to, to grow the faith and to prepare ourselves that, uh, uh, for, the, for what may lie ahead. Uh, distractions, uh, whatever that may be, uh, the, trying, to, trying to do the urgent things of life rather than the important things of life, whatever that may look like to you. And then finally, emotions. Let me talk about this just briefly. I think sometimes emotions get in the way of our faith growing. And I will use myself as an example. I know in my own life there are times that I look inward and not upward. I I look behind me instead of in front of me. In other words, I'm trying to look inside myself for answers, and I'm trying to change what happened in the past, and that tends to conjure up all kinds of emotions in my own life. And... um, even, I guess, some probably would call it depression, I guess, in, in a sense that I become so um, encapsulated by the emotions that I'm experiencing that I tend to not look and walk in faith in Jesus Christ. I'm looking at the world around me, the observable, the seen, and not the unseen. And um, whatever the emotion may be for, for each, any of us, um, I think that can be a distraction to our faith. Our emotions need to follow our faith, not the other way around. Our emotions should follow our faith. Those who have trusted Christ have no worries about their destiny. But how about now? How about this moment? How diligently are we toward our faith? Are we paying careful attention to our response to the revealed word of God? We must persevere through good and bad circumstances. May we as individuals keep bowing our knee daily. Before God. Let's pray. Father, I just uh, thank you for this letter that uh, Peter had wrote, and Father, that we're now reading some 2,000 years later. Father, I pray um, in each of our lives that uh, there are so many things in this world that can, that can cause an urgent reaction, and I know certainly I have stumbled in this area in many ways, but Father, you call us for the important things. You call us to the things of faith. And Father, I pray that you would help us to take the same diligence that we go about in our jobs, in our sports, uh, in our uh, hobbies, in our music, whatever it may be. Father, may we take that same diligence and even more so and apply it to our faith. May we, may we read our Bibles. May we pray uh, with diligence May we pay careful attention to what your word says, and uh, may we look to let our life be changed by it. Father, help us in this. Father, we need you, 
And uh, Father, we acknowledge that you are author of our faith. You're the perfecter of our faith. Father, we pray that we might exercise it. In the name of Jesus, we pray.